Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm in Hammersmith with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello Barney. Joining us for episode 165 all the way from Folkestone is acclaimed novelist Michelle Faber. Welcome Michelle. Hi. <laughs> Michelle is the author of Under the Skin, The Crimson Petal and White and The Book of Strange New Things and many other books but he's just published his First non-fiction title, and it's about music. It's called Listen on Music, Sound and Us, and it's fascinating. So we're going to talk about it, and we'll also hear clips from a 1995 audio interview with Nick Cave, and we may even turn our attention to a painter named Don Van Vliet. Michelle, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of scattered autobiographical material in listen but the book is certainly not a music memoir per se i know it was originally a lot longer than you had intended it or wanted it to be or finished it as does it still achieve what you set out to do and can you sum up what that was well my heart is still broken from all the things that i had to cut out of it obviously but people don't read enormous books about music they have them on their shelves and say mm, maybe tomorrow <laughs> so um i did have how did to... you know that <laughs> <laughs> well you know i've i've met lots and lots and lots of people who've bought the rest is noise because it got reviews to die for and of all those people dozens of people i've met one who's actually read it and it's probably a marvellous book, but it is enormous and daunting. And I, I want to listen to be reader friendly and inviting. I hope it is. But what remains in it, we, we got rid of all the things about scenes, musical scenes, and just concentrated on the things which looked at the act of listening. What happens when we listen? Why do we listen as we do? Um, that's basically what we tried to carve it down to. I really like the, the thing of everyone kind of thinking that by playing music to their babies, that, that it'll be good for the babies. In fact, what babies hear is a massive amount of noise from the insides of their mothers. Yeah, it's, it's very, very loud in there. And, um, yes, yeah, so I speculate that if, if you truly wanted to play someone music that took them back to their happy times in the womb... <laughs> You would probably be playing them industrial yeah, music. I'm sure it's in the Neubauten. I'm sure it's in the Neubauten, controlled bleeding, this sort of thing. Yeah. Fantastic. In the book, you come at music from many different angles. I mean, I've listed a few of them here randomly, really. Fashion, racial bias, social use, misogyny auditory biology to for just snobbery and shame, fetishization of vinyl, live performance, dementia, experimentation, charity shops, and indeed music journalism and album reviews. You know, is it fair ultimately to say that while the book celebrates music, it's first and foremost a kind of exercise in demystification? Yes, that's, that's fair to say. I think the, the really deep passionate, engaged love of music is a minority interest. And when you meet someone who really, really loves music for its own sake rather than for what it has done for them autobiographically, 
you're meeting quite a small number of people. Mm. It's it's similar to meeting people who are really really into Renaissance art or yeah. gardening or you know breeding pedigree dogs or whatever. It's 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 a niche thing, and for most people, music serves purposes, various social purposes. It helps them to bond with their peer group. Mm-hmm. It means there's something to talk about with the people at, at work. Uh, you know, there's a new Rolling Stones album out. Everybody is aware there's a new Rolling Stones album out. You can have that cliched conversation about is it a return to form, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And these are ways of getting on with, with the people that you hang around with. And they really have nothing to do with what, that music intrinsically might be doing for you. I mean, arguably, you know, I found myself thinking while I was reading the book that, you know, what we do here at Rock's Back Pages in the end isn't really about music. (laughs) 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 Sorry, it sounds like like apostasy, but in in a sense, it's true. What we're actually doing here is we're kind of, we're kind of wallowing in a certain amount of nostalgia we're exchanging information we're organizing information and opinion we do listen to music in in the office but i suspect that actually it's a it's a sort of one or two removed yes. from what you're trying to do in this book yes and and there's also that question that hangs over our listening even those of us who regard ourselves as music fans how long is it actually since we truly deeply engaged with the albums that we talk about? I mean, we're hoping later in the podcast to talk about Captain Beefheart. I love Captain Beefheart. How long is it since I've actually yeah, played yeah. Trout Mask Replica? Uh, I would probably say maybe eight years. If I was quizzed about it and someone showed me evidence, mm-hmm. who knows? It yeah. might be 10 years, 12 How long? Uh, also, I mean, this is increasing because streaming services means we actually approach music in an entirely different way. Yes, um, yes. You just pick and choose yeah. now. I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for, let's say, the younger demographic who have really got into vinyl in a big way and so on and so forth and, and whether they sort of fetish, fetishise albums in a way that we used to. I don't think they, you don't think they do, do you? Well, there, there is, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that much of the vinyl that is being bought is not being played. Right. Mm. It, it, it's being bought as, mm. yes. as a fetish object, as a way of demonstrating that you're into something sure. old school and cool. And I'd say there, there are some areas of intersection. I mean, I, I come, was a very late raver and I got into the sort of whole scene of the people who would have valve amplifiers, tipshorn speakers... Torrens turntables playing disco parties, which is about an obsession with the sound with vinyl, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but is also a social interaction and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So yes. that, that kind yes. of I had a fascinating experience, funnily enough, in this in this regard last week. When I got home and I felt absolutely exhausted. I was just wiped out and fit for nothing, not even watching television to distract mm-hmm. myself. And I plonked myself down in an armchair and just started listening to one of my interminable playlists of you know, tracks I love on my phone. Yes. And I just sat there and I was too tired to move. <laughs> and I just started getting, even just on an iPhone, just getting into the music in a way that was absolutely rapturous. And it sort of crescendoed for me in, it, it's a random thing. And on shuffle and it got to sad but true by metallica Mm -hmm. (laughs) and for about five minutes i was 
in me, I was in heaven. Mm-hmm. I was in absolute heaven. I was ab- just completely lost in this piece of music. Well, one so of the it things, was really interesting. Yeah, one of the things that's, that's interesting about that, I mean, there's a number of things that are interesting, <laughs> but the fact that it was coming out of your phone, because there's a chapter in, in the book called Let's Rumble, which is about vinyl and the fetishization of vinyl and the, the deluded notion that there is more on a vinyl LP than there is on digital yeah. music. And the people who are really into that kind of hi-fi would have total contempt for you listening to something on your phone, mm. for God's sake. Yeah. That could not possibly deliver a transcendent no. musical experience. But it did. But it did. It, it did, and partly course, because I know the track, yeah. Yeah. right? Yes. And that's always... I think that's an issue yeah. that's interesting but it's also, to look But it also comes to the next... I mean, for example, I've got a really decent stereo at home, and I've hardly played anything through it in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I've got these little Bluetooth speakers, yes. which I can just turn on a, a Spotify into that. And that's, how, that's the way I listen to music now. I'm not getting the fantastic experience of these, this beautiful stereo. You but? Know? But I'm, actually, I'm listening to more music as a consequence. Well, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's a trade-off in a sense. I think it's interesting. You mentioned earlier that there are, and I think this is quite probably true, that there are very few sort of true music fans who are really passionate to that deep extent. But... Don't you think that there's still some difference between music and other interests in that even for non, like, that level of music fans, many, many people would say that they are, on occasion, deeply moved yes. by music? Yes, I, I, I think one of the special things about music is that it enters, literally enters our bodies, mm-hmm. our bloodstreams, mm-hmm. before we have the capacity to analyse or make any judgments about it. So people's relationship with, for example, books or movies, mm. it, it has to form when they're older because they can't, yeah. you know, ingest it when they're younger. Whereas music, you know, babies and toddlers are taking it in and it is doing something to them. It's a bit mysterious what that mm. is, but that relationship is non-consensual, if you, if you like, yeah, because yeah. The, the, the music will go into the body and do that thing and in some cases will create a very deep and passionate Mm. love Mm. in people who, if they had been older and and given the choice as to whether they would like that thing or not, Mm. might not have chosen to like it. But, you know, it's there. Yes, yes. One of the chapters in the book, I know they're not chapters as such, but one of the pieces in the book is about live performance Mm. and it's very interesting. And one of these I think is interesting is that no one ever says I went to hear X at the Albert mm-hmm. Hall last mm-hmm. night. Always privileges the the sense of seeing of yes. sight. No one ever no one ever says I went to hear this band. So it's interesting to me that that sense is privileged over the auditory experience of music. Mm. I don't know why that should be. I but see. It's just I see fun. Mark's mouth about to open. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think they say "see" because you are seeing. It, yes, but they mm. absolutely go well, de- decreasingly so. But they go to to listen to what's been performed. But then, well, why would you not put here first? Because it's about music, well, it's not yeah, about it, how they look or what dis- clothes they wear. Structure is more yeah. of a more of a quirk of language than something yeah. kind of deeply I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> we can come I, to blows about I, this afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's more that probably most people, you know, if you if you said to most people, would you give up, would you rather be blind or deaf? I suspect most people would probably say 
they would rather be deaf. But they wouldn't be going to concerts. They wouldn't be going to concerts. That's a very good point. Oh, um, yeah. there even Glynny who managed, managed to kind of... Well, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually not true. They might be because there are yeah. other... There are more senses that music can actually affect than just hearing. You know, you can now buy sort of semi-speakers that actually sit like a backpack sit on your back and help you feel the bass in a way right. that you can normally only there's, feel sure. with an enormous go, sound system. You could go raving as a deaf There's a chapter I had to cut out of the book for space reasons called I Said Hey Hey, <laughs> which is about the glitter band playing a gig at a particular venue and they are really struggling to engage the audience. They try every trick in the book, mm-hmm. you know, come on, girls, let's hear you sing, etc. Everyone's completely ignoring them. And at the end of this clip, you, you are told that this is, in fact, a club for the deaf. And that that's why these people are reading magazines rather than, you know, <laughs> listening, listening to the glitter band. Uh, no one had told the glitter band this. And... One of the things that illustrates is that in a venue, there's lots of things going on. People mm-hmm. are going there for a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. They're hanging out with their kind. You know, they're, they're, they're having a social experience. Mm-hmm. And it may not actually be totally necessary that they hear the music. Um, Unfortunately, this, is, this has actually become a, a, a thing now. I mean, where I basically stopped going to see pop, popish groups. My thing is mm-hmm. R&B and so on and so forth. Because... You can't hear the band for the audience talking through mm-hmm. the show. So actually it's become all about the experience of the night out rather than about the experience of actually listening to music. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, in the end. Yeah, yeah. I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there and it kind of goes back to something you said earlier, which is the enjoyment of music for music's sake or the enjoyment of music for, for background's sake or nostalgia's sake or whatever raises this topic of like, well, is there such a thing as a higher order pleasure or that's sort of more valid and more... Mm-hmm genuine in some way or is it a sort of level playing field and actually listening to music for a purpose is sort of fine well of course historically we're in this weird weird little tiny blip historically where we have recorded music and we can return to it it's it's not an evanescent experience and of course for most of human history music very much had various purposes yeah, yeah. there's no way that you would have music purely for some aesthetic thrill mm-hmm. that, that would have been a bizarre concept but that i love that of, concept yeah. you know yeah. I'm, I'm not dissing it and that was a sort of 18th century invention yeah yeah music for pleasure well i mean i folk music's historically i would say even if they're let's say they're ritual based or whatever yes. it might be because you, you touch on this in the book but i would say that that is still a form of communal pleasure. It's not. It's not necessarily. I mean, it's pleasure via music, nevertheless, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, folk is passing on various um, Story- tribal experiences, yeah, storytelling, and so on. Um, but yes, that doesn't mean. Or a drum the- circle, for example. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that, no, that's no, something or, or, where or, people are participating in. Yeah. Maybe it's a ritual. Maybe well, it has. Well, there's so, a song that's that's that so religious while, while they were forced to work. Yes. Yeah. So, what was the use? What was the purpose of that? It was it was to make it yeah. less but also, horrible? You can't them. deny the pleasure people got from church music. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, yeah, which yeah. was functional, but yes. also provided. Right. That's kind of what I'm saying know. is that actually, you know, you can you can still have pleasure via music, yeah, even if sure. it has a yeah, yeah. an ultimate Indeed. purpose. If it didn't give you pleasure, then people wouldn't use it. Michelle, we've got very few pieces by you on Locksback Pages, but one of them we're going to feature on the current homepage is your review of David Byrne's How Music Works, which came out in 2012. 
And it made me wonder whether, you know, how many other books like that sort of set the scene or got you thinking about writing your own book about how music works? Well, David Byrne's book's a really good book, but one of the dynamics in it that it that it shares with a lot of music books is this sort of notion that if the reader took a page out of the author's book, they would improve their taste. You know, if, if they... If they made up a playlist mm-hmm. of, of the things that that author values, then they'd get an upgrade right. in, in, in their... <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, I, I very much wanted to avoid that in this book and give very little away about what I like mm-hmm. because it's really about what you like mm-hmm. and why you like it right. and why it's okay to like it even if it's considered uncool and, and Even so if on. it's Nana Muscuri. Well, she's a lovely singer and, yeah. and it's it's interesting that someone who had such a fine voice and who sold 350 million records, the highest-selling female singer, should be so invisible, so excluded yeah. from, from the conversation when people talk about music and about female singers in particular. Till the white rose blooms again And that leads us into areas of class, perhaps, Mm -hmm. the idea that things that are appreciated by working-class people Mm -hmm. or lower-middle-class people are somehow cruder or less less, have less merit than things that are appreciated by more educated or whatever you call it, higher-class people. And that's a very interesting area. And the sadness of the fact that all 350 million of those anonymous Scurry albums are now in charity shops. Not all 300, <laughs> but um, yes, there, there's a chapter later on in the book called The Dead Give Up Their Dunicans, yeah, which is, is about where all that music goes. Mm. But of course, we are also headed for where that music goes. Um, it's just one of those existential things. Yeah, you quote some friend of yours who works in charity shop. Who yeah. says not only do people bring in old vinyl and books, they bring in like photograph albums yes. and diaries. That All human life is diaries. And, yeah. and, and your friend is, feels so sad about that. And it is a kind of sadness. It's a deep sadness. I find found photograph albums fascinating they are, they are you know i, I mean it, yeah. it's, it's this odd glimpse that someone else it's a life, life that's with, being chucked away well yes yeah. but, but there's no no apparent narrative that you can discern yeah. all you can do is try and go from one picture to the next and one page to the next and sort of, sort of try and make sense of it and it, it's 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 really interesting. It's fun. there's an interesting connection to our last guest kate simon who said that one of the reasons she loves photography is that what do people grab when they when they're leaving their burning house? It's yes. their photo album, not their so jewelry, not their jewelry, <laughs> not their albums, no. not their MacBook. I'm sure Donald <laughs> Trump wouldn't take, <laughs> take the photographs. No, um, no. <laughs> he can't even remember the name of his yeah, first yeah. wife. I um, <laughs> but you know, charity shop donations are a bit like those photograph yeah, yeah. albums because you're looking at this Simple Minds album and you realise that that fulfilled a function in someone's life yeah, yeah. once. Mm. That was doing something yeah. for them, which clearly it no longer is yeah Yeah. exactly so quite early on in the book you know what i was enjoying actually but it slightly uncomfortably was this sort of assault uh, an assault on my own assumptions my own orthodoxies you know as someone who wrote for nme and was involved at the start of mojo and so i'm i come from 
from that sort of belief system, mm-hmm. if you like, with with a lot of reservations as it happens, mm. you know, and none more summed up than by the fact that the new issue of Mojo has got the Beatles on the cover mm-hmm. and the new issue of Uncut has got Bob Dylan on the cover. And no Paul Weller, well, wow. <laughs> well, thank God no Paul Weller. I can just about stomach the other two. But I do, there's something weirdly stuck about these publications that, you know, you know, when, when do you, I think maybe they put Aretha on, you know, one black woman on the cover when Aretha died and that was probably it mm-hmm. in the entire lifespan of those magazines right so what i i loved your just descent your just this quite mm, you know severe critique of the whole hundred greatest albums list and all of that stuff stuff i sort of grew up on and now i do i guess i do disavow do you think this it's will very be comforting to, to it's comforting to feel it? that you're part of a, yeah. a group who you know, broadly agree on what are the best things ever made. And you can have this interesting little peripheral discussion mm-hmm. about, now I think number 42, you know... Right. Did, that should, should be higher. Should be higher, etc. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I, I completely... I, I hate lists. I, I always have. You know, every now and again you see one which is actually kind of, you know, someone posted on Facebook the... The Enemy's choice of the top records of 1981, and it was just a fantastic list because so much great music was made in 1981. But generally, li- I hate lists. Always have hated lists. The received wisdoms, and and there's that in a chapter where you you talk to a number of people of colour about Pet Sounds, about Revolver, mm. and I I found that very interesting. They are what I found interesting about those conversations with those people of colour is how generous-spirited they were about their exclusion and the appropriation of music that, you know, comes from their heritage. They weren't, you know, furious or or demanding the music industry be turned upside down. They just wanted a little bit more acknowledgement. Yeah, Yeah, if they were lucky, Uh, what's going on? Kind of snuck into this sort of, you know, upper echelons in a sense so, you know, the, 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 the rock press has evolved in a certain particular sort of way and we now have this huge legacy rock press which is mm-hmm. about the, specifically about the past because we got now generations of mostly men who, yes. who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s who are just massively nostalgic for the well for, they want to be reminded that yeah. when they bonded with you know, a certain Bob Dylan album, yeah, yeah. they were demonstrating good taste. Yeah, yeah. And every month the magazine will remind yeah. them that, yes, indeed, when they, <laughs> when they, you know, rated that album highly, they were correct. Yeah. That's well, the I, function. I, I mean, I do agree that I, I don't think lists are particularly great because of the way that they sort of promulgate existing power structures, essentially, because it's like what once something has made it into someone's mm. top ten, mm-hmm. if someone else doesn't put it in there, then they're kind of in trouble with this sort of orthodoxy. But Semenya Sasha, one of the people that you speak to, I think makes a really interesting point, which is that I think ranking is a need to organise our thinking and our music appreciation is part of our thinking, part of our emotional lives. We need to ascribe value. What's my favourite stuff? What would I leave to my child? Mm -hmm. And for me, that actually does, I mean, it gets to the value of ranking things, of listing things when it's done for an individual, right? Yes. Because we, we do, you know, all of this in-group, out-group stuff, it is all about finding a place 
for ourselves and finding out what our values are and what yes. we want to... What that we is want another way of, of saying what makes us feel comfortable, to return to your earlier point. And therefore I found the chapter about uncomfortable music, the siren call of horrible din, which we are <laughs> extracting from, you know, very, very interesting Ooh. in that point. You know, that you, you talk about this... We're slowly experience. inching towards Captain Beefheart here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> in a very elegant Incrementally towards... Anyway, go on. Yeah, but, I mean, you talk about the experience of hearing the White Album at the age of 10, and even that, just taking that sort of chaotic double album, taking that in was quite difficult. But you get to Revolution 9, the penultimate track, and and you rightly point out that for most Beatles fans and pop fans, this was just a sort of an abomination. What the hell are they doing? You quote from Alan Smith's review that we have on Rock's back pages. Yeah, yeah. He calls it a load of old codswaller. Um, <laughs> he's disappointed that they've... But you say, my 10-year-old self was electrified, and you say, it made my brain light up with strange thrills. I couldn't even say if I liked or hated it. The piece seemed supremely indifferent to what I thought of it, as indifferent as a giant alien organism might be to the opinions of puny earthlings. And in that moment, the path towards surrealist provocateurs like Nurse with Wound opened up and I set foot on it and other paths I might have trodden on disappeared from view. So that's an interesting kind of moment in your in your young life. And I know other people, obviously, like, you know, my dear friend uh, Chris Bond, who was Bieber Cop for NME, who was mm-hmm. always trying to get me to listen to, you know, mainly German provocateurs. Mm-hmm. And it just would not stick because it just was not comfortable enough for me. Well, I mean, one of the quotes in the book is from a member of Einstein's Neu- yeah. Neubauten saying, we want to torture people. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that must have been it. Then. Well, yeah, evidently you did not wish to be tortured. I can still don't. But, 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 but so people hard. do, right? Yeah, you know, but, yeah. I mean, you know. Paradoxically, I'm now part of a sort of London improvised music scene, very, which I reached very much in my old age, because I wanted to hear something I hadn't heard before, mm. and it's really hard to find things that you haven't heard before because the history of music has become so embedded in the present of music, with exceptions like grime and so on and so forth, which in themselves are really interesting. And so it was actually the only way to sort of kind of wake myself up in terms of music. I can absolutely understand that. I mean, when when punk started evolving, one of the most interesting bands were Alternative TV, mm-hmm. and they got slated yeah, because yeah. they were doing this, you know, improvised, yeah. sort of jazzy, uh, chaotic probably music. My, probably my favourite punk band. Yeah, no, I, I, for me, they've they've stood the test of time. But the, the the point is that as soon as they were giving people things they hadn't heard before, yeah, yeah, in this spirit of hey, we're punks, mm. we can do anything we like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when we said you could do anything you like, that's not what we <laughs> meant. What yeah. we meant. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they were post-punk before post-punk, effectively. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, I'm just seeing them at the Hundred Club and thinking, this is actually more like Captain Beefheart, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. You right. know, there was, uh, and there was also a distinct like, black element to some of the stuff they did. There was a, kind of mm-hmm. a, a sort of funk, you know. I used the word funk in the loosest possible. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I like that passage that you read out, Barney, because it's, for me, at a roughly similar age of about 10 is when I discovered the ability to burn CDs using iTunes. Right. Mm-hmm. And one year I asked, I sort of quizzed my dad in a sort of random way that a 10-year-old child does about what he liked musically because I wanted to make him a, a sort of mixed CD for his birthday. Okay. And what ended up on that was like Honky Tonk Women 
by the Rolling Stones and Police People by Ornette Coleman. But to my <laughs> 10-year-old self, like, both of those cohabited very happily on this, on yeah, this yeah. mix. And I still love Ornette Coleman and mm. I still love that record. And it's like, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to always be made comfortable by that sort of thing. And well, I think that uh, yeah. children especially can be more receptive chaos. I was 11 when Purple Haze came out. And I hated it for about three months. I just mm. thought it was in the most appalling noise. And then one day, it's like a massive light bulb came on. And it actually changed the way I heard music. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Purple Haze has become part of this massive Jimi Hendrix canon. But it's a really extreme piece of music. Mm. Yeah, so, in a sense, it's a horrible dip. It's a, it's, it <laughs> really you know, when you is. first hear it, probably I mean, it's the, those opening chords, which are sort of... It's, it's a, violent. It's a, it's a it's really, violent. Yeah. 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 And yeah. when I first heard Patti Smith's Horses, yeah, yeah. I thought, this woman can't sing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... In a way, this woman can't sing. But, you know, you, you, you then <laughs> yeah. listen to it a number of times and yeah. you, you realise this is an extraordinary thing sure. if, you, if your brain can, yeah, yeah. you know, revolve a bit. If we're talking about, you know, sonic violence and horrible din. This sort of shades into, you know, your chapter about tinnitus, which I, I suffer from quite badly as well in this in this year particularly. And you talk about, I'll just read, it's The Force of the Blow from Michelle Faber's book, Listen. And this is how it starts. This is not how the chapter starts, I beg your pardon, but this section starts. I remember a tranquil sunny afternoon, the 10th of June, 1983, in my old Melbourne neighbourhood, the seaside suburb of St Kilda, to be exact, a decade or so before it gentrified. Lots of kebab shops, pawn shops, souvlaki joints, pornographic bookstores, brothels, and the Seaview Ballroom, where I had seen the birthday party the night before. It had been the band's last ever gig, although I didn't know that at time all i knew was that when i woke up the next morning i was deaf (laughs) (laughs) and you were deaf for about 48 hours Mm. you know quite sort of profoundly deaf weren't you unfortunately that didn't last forever but then tinnitus ever since um or i got better and then i got tinnitus many many years later later, yeah yeah yeah. i I don't know whether i damaged my ears in those years Who, who knows Mm. I mean, we we do these extraordinarily yep. unwise things no, I, I, with, I, I, our, with our body when I, we're younger. I mean, you know, Nick Coleman, our friend Nick Coleman, music journalist, yes. uh, is now almost profoundly deaf, and he's he's, he's got a, he wrote a book about it, the train in the night, yes. which is just what he hears. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my friend Kev Hopper, who's a bass player in a band called Stump, he's now got sort of pretty severe Chronic stuff. Stuff. I had an attack of Menia syndrome mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. a year ago. And I'm now pretty deaf in my right ear and have very, very loud tinnitus. You know, is that a consequence of like being this close to the function one speaks as a rave? Quite possibly. Then also it could just be a neural neural thing. Yes. And And Jasper said earlier, you know, some people do enjoy being tortured and there's those people who crawl inside... Black Sabbath's, you know, bass speakers and say, more pain, yeah, well, more pain. Actually, <laughs> I, I got pushed into a PA column, Johnny Winter and show, at the Royal Albert Hall in 1971. And I pushed. Couldn't, I couldn't, pushed by a very boisterous, by an Albert Hall stand. Not by crowd. one person yeah. who Not, thought you belonged. No, it's just like, you know, it was, I was something like right, this. Something there. Yes. And I couldn't hear anything for about three days. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wear earplugs, folks. Wear earplugs. Well, yeah, then, then the sound story. isn't good. Well, I mean, yeah. this, this is one of the things I cover in my book, that, that in late capitalism, which specialises in selling us 
extra stuff that we don't need. We have this extraordinary situation where we have amazing PA systems that pump out music at a level that we cannot cope with. Mm. So they therefore sell us very expensive earplugs. <laughs> All they really need to do is turn the music down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be a cheaper option. Yeah. Uh, the other yeah. thing is that the PA systems are better, but the sound men are much worse. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. what most you go and see a band these days... They, they get the kick drum as good as they can and mm. then just chuck everything over the top. Actually, it was interesting. I saw Little Sims over the weekend at Ali Pally. The and Sims. I mean, she was absolutely phenomenal. She is an incredible performer and an incredible musician. The sound was good and it wasn't too loud. Mm-hmm. We noticed right. afterwards... You could Actually, hear each other speak. We could hear each other. You know, it's like, well, it is possible not to yeah, make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and nevertheless, it was a totally transporting experience. Of, I, I of saw Gazelle that. Twin at uh, Bush Hall on Friday, and I was sort of up against the stage, so the speakers were next to my right. body, and I, I, could, I could feel there was a lot of, you know, wind <laughs> yeah. flapping past my, <laughs> yes. my midriff, but I, I wasn't, you know, on the receiving end of it because yeah, I was yeah. next to it. And I certainly wasn't deaf coming out of that gig. And she was amazing. And everyone, you know, was focused on that gig. They right. weren't talking mm, amongst right. themselves. Well, so, that, you know, which is it relief. can happen. Yeah. If we go back to the birthday party, who evidently were playing too loud <laughs> on the 10th of June, 1983, I saw, I had seen them play at the Roxy in West Hollywood not long before that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how many gigs they played in that period of time before Mm. they fell apart but they'd sort of rather as you described they'd sort of lost the the solidarity there Mm. and it was they were they were dying one felt a bit anyway the point is that back in 2002 11 years before scarlett johansson starred in the film version of your novel under the skin which i know jasper oh, you i, really thought, like I, I really enjoyed yeah. that film i thought yeah. it was <laughs> i don't know what, I, did you did you like the adaptation yeah, of your oh, yeah. i mean for me it's it's an ideal adaptation it's so free it doesn't feel obliged to attempt to mm-hmm. make a i have to confess i haven't I haven't read the book yeah, but. fine fine i mean for me it the relationship of Jonathan Glazer's film to my book is similar to the relationship of Apocalypse Now to Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It's, sure. it's right. that kind of... Right. Interesting. Right. Which, right. you know, that's that's what you want as an artist. Sure. I right. would have no, thought. No, yeah. Amazing soundscapes in oh, that yeah. film as well. I mean, Mika Levy wow. is great. I have not read the novel or seen the film, but I do want to interject there that I have read The Crimson Petal and White and thought it was magnificent. And I also, the poems that you wrote about Eva, your second wife, mm-hmm. Undying, that collection of verse, I think, is extraordinary. So beautiful. I heard you reading from the, at, mm-hmm. uh, the Curious Literary Festival. Mm-hmm. So I just just chuck that in before we go back to uh, Nick, Nick Cave. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I wanted to say that. And, and, um, so you sent up... very movingly about grief. Nick Cave. Well, yes, quite. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, so y- you have a lot in common with Nick Cave. You sent us in 2002 this, this wonderful piece that's still on Rock's Back Pages, probably one of the, the earliest original pieces, aside from what I was occasionally writing for the site. It's basically going back to 1979 when you interviewed Nick and... And the late Roland Howard and drummer Phil Calvert of uh, the group that then was known as the Boys Next Door. And it is absolutely fascinating. You wrote it for, you were a student at the University of mm-hmm. Melbourne at the time. Glad to say that they subscribed to Rock's Back Pages. <laughs> <laughs> Check that. Um, but they had a, there was a student rag called Farago yes. and you wrote 
some music pieces for that. Including, I, I did. And, and you interviewed the boys next door. The impression one gets is no, no one else wanted to interview them or thought very much of them. And indeed, you, you're not very flattering about what you call the sanitised punk pop of that album, Door Door, which I have next door, I'm pleased <laughs> to say. But it's very interesting to read about Nick, you know, who at that point, you know, you talk you describe him as a fresh-faced fairly healthy looking young man his hair was washed and fluffy he wore a schoolboyish shirt and a stylish jacket indeed neither he nor phil calvert would have looked out of place in an early lineup of duran duran that didn't last <laughs> no and they say, within a couple of years nick's appearance would undergo an alarming metamorphosis and his visage would loom out of the british music papers like a public health warning <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic and then you've got this kind of q a uh, verbatim here of, of your conversation with them and it's very fun it's very interesting to to someone who you know saw the birthday party numerous times here to see I them in the cassette back to farago oh, they had given shame. it to me and you know i couldn't afford to buy cassettes so i was honour bound to give it back to them. If I'd kept it, of course, could I could have, have given it to. Wouldn't Rockstack that be amazing? Yeah. Be Do you think it could be still sitting in a kind of <laughs> box somewhere? In no, the it will have probably Kylie Minogue on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, it's 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 a marvelous piece, and you talk about this experience you you have when I think under under the skin is obviously being published in Czech or something, and you're mm. in a you're in a, a, a bookstore in Bratislava, am I right? And yes, yes. You your book is there, and you see Nick's novel, um, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing is and the ass and the, the ass or the angel yeah, yeah. that one, and it sort of hits you as a as a sort of extraordinary moment that you're both now novelists. <laughs> You know, all these years later, 22 years later. Yeah, yeah. And I, I reviewed the death of Bunny Munro for, for The Guardian. Okay, there you um, go. I mean, he's a proper novelist. It's, he should do a few more. I think you're a better novelist than, than Nick Cave, but we won't have that conversation <laughs> now. Part, partly this is a way of, of queuing up uh, the week's new audio interview. So it's, a, it's a, like how far Nick had come from <laughs> the fluffy-haired Duran Duran lookalike of 1979. Mark, tell yeah, us about it. It's Andy Gillen speaking in 1995 about the Murder Ballads album. Well, we must listen to the very first, first clip. Um, let's listen to this. It, I mean, it's not exactly a new subject for you, is it, really? Well, no, it's not. It's an old, It's an idea I've been banging away at for years, really. Yeah. Um, and hopefully it's, it's, it's something of, of kind of cleaning up the house and hopefully, um, you know, but with this record it will be the closing of a, a chapter in my creative life and that is of, of, of the murder ballad. <laughs> yeah. I guess the only, the only kind of uh, thing lacking on the album, there's, there's if you're, uh, distinct... Lack of preachers on it for you. I mean, there's normally a there's no preachers on it. Oh, good God! Um, no. Well, I should have murdered one of them. Well, anyone who thinks Nick doesn't have a sense of humour, I think that it's a very Australian sense of humour, and lots of people miss it. But yeah, it's, right. it's definitely there. isn't it? Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've actually written a little bit about this because just when I, you know, I spent a lot of time with the birthday party, and I found it very difficult to plug into their mode of 
mm-hmm. humour within the group, and it's very dark and mordant. <laughs> it's not cheery, is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he talks about one song triggering the soft song called o- O'Malley's Bar. That writing that really sort of gave him the idea of continuing the theme and, and, and working on with it. The attraction of murder ballads and the narrative that's contained contained in them. A uh, very fast recording process, basically mostly cut live, some of the songs cut. He was writing them with the band in the studio, cutting them within 15, 20 minutes, some of them. I have to admit, I think it sounds a bit like that, but that's <laughs> not just... Andy asked him, have you ever been tempted to murder anyone himself? Uh, and Nick said, no, but he, he's aware that he he's got, he's, he does have anger. He has... Re- and, of course, we've got on the site the interview with Jack Barron did with him, where he basically he's, he tries to beat Jack Barron up. And can kick him into the into the into the into a harbour. I think it's a. <laughs> he, he's definitely got a. Bit well, of, we also have the audio interview in which he tells Matt Snow oh, God, that oh, he is the scum. inspiration for the song Scum. scum. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> and no, he's no, reading no. out the lyrics. Yeah, no, and no, Matt's no, going, no, 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 Matt. It's, it's not about music journalists. It's about you. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. I know, I know a female journalist who's convinced that Scum is about her. So it, it, Antonella. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think it was also about her because she wrote right. um, she she wrote a few rather brilliant and very irreverent pieces for Zigzag magazine. One was about Morrissey, which infuriated him, mm-hmm. and the one about Nick was was equally infuriating to Nick Cave. And it's part of how she became a kind of Australian bet noir, I think. Um, but fascinating <laughs> stuff. Is that like Bette Davis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but dark. Kate Simon being, being referred to as Bette by David Bowie yeah. in the last episode. Um, yeah, he talks about the pleasure of writing about violence, uh, his take on the Stagger Lee story. Uh, and then, well, we listen to the next clip. He talks about duetting with Kylie Minogue. They call me the You only have to listen to the song to see that it was a um, a marriage made in heaven, really, in terms of... Um, it, I think it was, a, to me, a kind of perfect coupling of, of voices and characters and so on. Um, I'm immensely proud of that little sort of episode in my creative life. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I'd wanted to do for years, to sing a song with Kylie Minogue and that she wanted to and did so with such enthusiasm and intelligence and courage was extremely uh, gratifying to me. And I kissed her goodbye, said all beauty must die And I leant down and painted a rose between her teeth They call me the wild rose Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I really like what he says there. Yeah. And his question is slightly couched in the thing of, why did you do something with Kylie Minogue? But Kylie Minogue had already kind of changed her entire, who she was by that point. And actually, it makes an enormous amount of sense. I mean, Kylie Minogue went from being the poppiest pop person, you know, neighbours, Stockacre and Waterman, to really, I think, a, a substantial artist, you sure, know. Sure, uh, and I And I found Andy's question 
Well, I mean, I, I, you can I, I, understand from a point of view of, you know, if you were Kylie Minogue's manager and she's this squeaky clean, you know, soap opera star such as Stockake and Waterman that maybe, as it were, getting creatively into bed with Nick Cave might not have gone down very well with some of her fans. I mean, I think that... No, but she was beyond of, that. She was already yeah. way beyond yeah, I think, that. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. face it, Kylie Minogue is pretty cool. She is pretty cool. Well, I what mean, do you the, think of Kylie? And well, in, in the context of Australian culture, this, I this I apparently speak. unlikely coming together of Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue, what, what's your take on something like that? As someone who spent, you know, how many years were you living in Australia? I left in 93. Yeah, right. Just so. when Kylie was getting credible. <laughs> well, <laughs> Are the two things connected? It, well, it's interesting, the, the credible thing, because, yes, it is true that she changed and adapted mm-hmm. her relationship with music in order to be less squeaky clean and more substantial. That's the, I'm not mm. arguing with that. Mm. But there is also an evolution of the listener thing sure. going on where people who look back on themselves in the 80s no longer wish to have contempt for themselves for liking the things that they liked yeah. then. And they will then be tempted to say, well, actually, she was pretty good <laughs> because they don't want to feel that they were terribly uncool. Right. So all sorts of people then get rehabilitated in order to to spruce up the, the, the taste that one once had. And the story of one's... The, the story of... Uh, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think actually that's kind of sometimes where what we have on RBP comes in, because you can read interviews with Kylie in the 80s. I mean, Tom Hibbert's interview with Kylie, she actually comes out of pretty well. She's funny, she's oh, she's, a bright, she's a bright woman. And even at a time when, it, you know, let's face it, Tom Hibbert as an interviewer, isn't necessarily trying to rehabilitate Kylie Minogue. <laughs> uh, you know, she does actually... I've been waiting back... for the Mark Pringle love, <laughs> the, the proper big one, this whole podcast. Go on, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Dan. No, but, but she does come out, you know, looking back, you can, you can see contemporaneously, she, she's, she is smart, she is yes. sort of on it, and she's, she's willing to make fun of the way that the press treat her. She's willing to kind of be a little bit irreverent and a yeah. little bit... You know, and, yeah. and and actually, so it's not. It doesn't have to be a retrospective rehabilitation. No, if you can, true. if you that's can true. look at something that was at that time and think, hang on a minute, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, while she was part of the Starkaker and Waterman machine as a personality, she was always independent in the way that other people, like dear old Rick Astley, was unable to be at the time. You know, um, oh, yeah. Maybe. I mean, is this where we just briefly announce that Tom Hibbert's interview with Kylie is included <laughs> in a book that we have put together which is being announced um, as as almost as we speak um, coming out in February and uh, is a collection of pieces by and about the late Tom Hibbert who uh, we would say is certainly one of the funniest music journalists Absolutely. who ever lived so 1st of February 2024 a My book birthday. called Oh, there yeah. you go. Well, Happy birthday, Mark. <laughs> if, if you behave, you might get a free copy. Yeah. Uh, Published by 9-8 Books. With, with a forged signature of uh, autograph and <laughs> Hibbert in it. Yeah, yeah. A dead man's oh, signature. Yeah. Yes. No, I hope yeah. not. Yes. Anyway, it's called Few A Readers, question mark. The Life, the life and writing. writing of Tom Hibbert. And um, we would say this, but we think it's pretty great. Pretty great, yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, very funny. I can still say, having read it, innumerable times while proofreading it I was still finding myself laughing out loud at sections of it he was incredibly funny and the contemporary reflections that we were able to invite our contributors to to write are 
funny, moving, and and the whole the run the whole gamut. So yes. it's, it's mm-hmm. you know yes, yeah, so we've got got very very nice pieces by everyone from uh, Mark Ellen to Sylvia Patterson to Robin Hitchcock. Oh, and a wonderful blurb from Neil Tennant, who of Indeed. course worked at Smash Hits with Tom. Anyway, that's shall we talk, that's about, the, shall we yeah. talk about Captain Beef? Well, we were. I just want just before we do okay. that, I just <laughs> wanted to go back to this the, the just the sort of <laughs> evolution of Nick Cave, and I just wanted to quote from. From this piece you sent us which you talk about your memory of cave at that gig in 1983 every time nick cave fell down which was frequently a shudder would pass through the wooden boards and roland howard seething with disdain kicked cave in the ribs and yelled get up you cunt and then you say a little a little further on, if someone had predicted that Nick would one day publish a fine literary novel and croon piano ballads like Into My Arms to a hushed audience at the Barbican, I would have laughed. And, you know, I mean, that chimes very much with my own experience because I saw Nick at his absolute worst and he was not someone who was likely, as far as I could see, to live much beyond 1990, mm-hmm. let alone be performing at the Barbican and having a South Bank show dedicated to him. Mm. I mean, it is, a, it is extraordinary how he managed to stay alive and survive and turn himself into this, you know, very credible artistic figure. What do you, what do you think about Nick in 2023? Well, the thing that I find enduringly poignant about Nick is not any of those things. It's the fact that his father died before Nick was able to demonstrate to him that instead of being this drug-addled fuck-up, he actually had these literary talents that, that flowered in a way that his father um, would have very who much... Who was an English Who was teacher. an Eng- English teacher. Right. Would have very much appreciated. Mm. And for me, the, the, the sort of luminescent poignancy of that career is is that all those things came after the death of that father who, as far as he was concerned, had this failure, you know, this this, yeah. this self-destructive loser, loser of, of a son. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Have you read Mark Mordew's book, Boy on Fire? I have not. It's very, very good about Nick's early life uh-huh. and his the way that his father's death, in a sense, has been a real driver for his, you know fanatical work ethic if you uh-huh. like yeah uh-huh. that's very very good into my arms oh lord into my arms oh lord into my arms oh lord so just um we're going to make a little lateral move here when 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 I was writing about the birthday party and you were uh cognizant of them and seeing them they they were reinventing themselves as you know they this they've been this kind of new wave fluffy hair band and before you know it they're the first birthday party the boys next door morph into mm-hmm. the birthday party the hee-haw sort of ep type thing yeah. comes out and then my first awareness was prayers on fire in fact it was andy gill writing about the right. birthday party in nme that was my introduction to them i thought they sound really interesting and then before you know release the bats comes over i mean i start i'm starting to see them and 
you know, they, what one of the things that I remember talking to them about when I when I did a, a story on them was was Captain Beefheart. <laughs> clearly, they were influenced by Iggy and the Stooges. Clearly, they were influenced to some degree by Perubu, even maybe Throbbing Gristle. Who knows? But but there was something about Prayers on Fire, something like Zoo Music Girl, the mm, first mm. track, where, which made me think about the Magic Band and. We're mentioning Captain well, even B- the beginning yeah. of Big Jesus Trash Can. Kaboom, boom, boom. Yes, it's it's Beef Hut. Right. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, I they were thrilling live. Mm. I'm not sure it ever translated quite so effectively to record. Mm. But since we're talking about Beef Hut, I got a press release a couple of weeks ago uh, about a, a private view at the Michael Werner Gallery on 22 Upper Brook Street, London W1. That's about as posh as it gets. It absolutely <laughs> <laughs> And it's an exhibition called Don Van Vliet Standing on One Hand and it is paintings by the man we know more familiarly as Captain Beefheart from the 1980s and 90s. And Mark, I mean, the, the point to, about Beefheart is that he uh, never made a lot of money as a musician, but as a painter, no, he I, became very successful. Well, I mean, he's that very rare thing, a rock musician who became a genuinely great, great painter, really mm-hmm. terrific mm-hmm. painter. I mean, there's so many... Unless leaving Ron Wood aside, let's leave Ron Wood <laughs> well aside. I mean, Joni Mitchell was sort of re- reinvented herself as a painter. I think she's deep, Not deep, a very good painter. Deeply indifferent. Ron Wood is an appalling yeah, Bob, painter. Bob Dylan, the same. John, Bob uh, Dylan. Just ghastly stuff. Very, very um, indifferent. Chrissy Hind, one point I saw a documentary where she says that it's all about painting now. And you just look at her work and think, oh my God, what shit is this? You know? Ke- Kevin Coyne got a really big reputation as, as a painter I in Germany. I I. He was definitely it, it more interesting do it for me, and compelling. But, uh, it's, yeah. yeah, but there was but, something there. But there was way, certainly something there. Yeah, in yeah. a way, as a personality, he was always that sort of person all along, even as, as a singer, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Beefheart, I mean, after he finally retired, he sort of came and went, came and went. We were just talking about this earlier. But in the 80s, he basically went out to the, to the desert outside Los Angeles, actually basically where he came from. What's um, really interesting is in one of the pieces we're featuring in the featured artist um, uh, panel on the homepage is Gary Lucas, yep. guitarist and, and indeed RBP contributor, did an interview in May 1973 for Zoo World. And he, even at this point, he talks about the thousands of poems, paintings yep. that litter his... Uh, Beefheart's home yeah. in Eureka, California. Right. So, I mean, already at that point. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, the real thing, I mean, you know, an extraordinary musician, a musician, sort of, you know, band leader, mm-hmm. creator, but who had a second act, which is, was substantial. It's fantastic. Yeah. I just want to say that two musicians in the sort of avant-garde industrial area though they wouldn't accept that um, that term, <laughs> uh, David Tibet and mm. Stephen Stapleton, both extraordinary visual artists, right. amazing visual artists. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, yeah. yes. I, I mean, it's not su- entirely surprising in that the link between art school and areas of rock and roll goes right back to the early 60s. And the, the two... Th- the two Mediums have rubbed along side by side, and so on. Peter Blake's involved in things like the Sergeant Pepper cover and all that. Mm-hmm. That you know, some of them, some people must have come out of this, yes, uh, and be able to do that. But 
most of the ones that we know of are just ghastly. Yeah. I mean, Beefheart is one of those, from a musical point of view, is one of those sort of cult figures that, that's always celebrated in magazines like Jasper, Mojo. Jasper, what does it mean to you? Because we, we've got two guys of a certain generation here um, um, extolling the virtues of Captain Beefheart. I have. To, I mean, I find it interesting musically. Trout Mask Replica. I find him as a character, as a sort of in the firmament of that space. Uh-huh. You know, Beefheart Zapper. That's an interesting set of stories to yes. me. Is it something that I hugely identify with, or is it sort of a foundational part of my musical, my own personal musical mm. pantheon, if you like? No, not really. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not of interest. I, you, I, don't, I don't think anything, anyone's, anyone's obliged to like anything. I know that's one of the things that pisses me off, at, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the modification of things, is the idea that you're actually obliged to like X and Y and Z. I, as it happens, that I Spotlight Kid was my introduction to Captain mm-hmm. Beefheart, mm-hmm. and I still don't really get on terribly well with Trap Mask Replica, which everyone hails as his mm-hmm. great masterpiece. But well, it uh, is very Marmite. Uh, yeah. yeah, but but my 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 sister's then boyfriend, who's the the nth secretary at Cambridge Tech, gave me a copy of Spotlight Kid when it when it came mm. out, and then he bought us to see him at the Albert Hall in nineteen seventy two, and it's one of the great shows mm-hmm. I've ever mm-hmm. seen in my life, and I, I've seen you know like Barney and all of us have seen so much music over the years. So much, much. Of, so much of which I've completely <laughs> forgotten or it's just... just yeah. But some gigs really stand out. I can yeah. still see that show in my mm. head. Mm. You know, the ballet dancer coming on at the beginning and then the bass and drums, sort of the bass, bass, mm-hmm. bass guitar solo. And then, and, you know, John, cause the middle orchestra, east or west seats, which is slightly behind the stage at the Arbor Hall, which is a, a really nice place to sit because you're kind of watching the band watching the audience, you know, yeah. and John Peel scuttling around because he was a big <laughs> beef heart man, you know, and it was just fantastic. Wingdeal fingerling, not touching his guitar until Alison Blunderland, where he just walked up to his amp, turned up two volume controls up to full, played that song, which is his yeah. big solo on, on Spotlight, yeah. and then turned the amps back down again. And just <laughs> rocked back and yeah. forth. I don't know that I've even necessarily consciously listened to something like Spotlight Kid. So it's... it's Clear for Spot. Me, Those two albums, Spotlight Kid and Clear Spot, which is the album afterwards. For me, it's which you can actually like, get on a CD together. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You, can. you know, it's a question of, you know, making time. With, en- with anything going back, you know, one has to make time to simply go and listen yeah, to yeah. these things and sure. form an opinion. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't say with any authority that I have a clear opinion of... Captain Beefheart sure. musical over because I, as I said, I haven't can't I don't well, I mean, know well, that I've listened to Spotlight. One of the implicit example. or explicit messages of of my music book is that music is so huge and yes. we are so small yeah. mm-hmm. that anyone who tells you or implies that you should be getting to grips with it is asking you to do the impossible. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you, does, you can only bond with the things that are around, you know, for you to bond with. It does with. interest me what makes it into the, you must have heard, you know, the, the, the classic things that you have to have heard before you die yeah, list, yeah. you know, what makes it in there and what doesn't. Because there's lots of stuff where it just, it's a total function of where you grew up, Enculturation is absolutely. And whilst you went to see Little Sims the other night, and I think that's actually much more interesting in a way. You know, mm. why do you have to just go back all the time when there is 
fantastic stuff. I think one of the joys of getting older is actually just care so much less about what people think you should be listening to. Right. Yeah, yeah. I really do not give a flying fuck. I listen to Radio 3. I like days. what I like and I don't like what I don't yeah. like. And and I, I, I really don't care what anybody uh, thinks of my opinions. Uh, uh, there's I, I there's also the interesting right. dynamic where, I mean, I played Louisa, my girlfriend, uh, the Spotlight Kid, mm-hmm. for the first time. She'd never heard it. And she didn't like it. Right. And there was a chapter that I took out of the, the music book for reasons. The Beaver of, chapter. No, 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 <laughs> reasons, um, no it was called the, the Day Kate Bush Turned to Shit. And, <laughs> and um, it, it was about what happens when you play something that you really, really like to someone who, really as the it. seconds pass, you can tell that they really, really don't. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And how that changes your feeling. perception. Of, of, you know, you, you actually hear it differently mm. as if you're hearing it through the ears of this person who's really not impressed. That is interesting. That's very interesting. I experience that when I sit down with someone and say, this is the funniest film ever made. Oh, that's <laughs> they cool. sit there ash and stone face and you suddenly <laughs> yeah. go, it's yeah. not very funny. This yeah. is one of the reasons why I actually I don't play music to other people. Uh, no, uh-huh. like, like, like my, my girlfriend, I mean, Susanna, I don't... Because it's too hurtful. Well, no, it's just... Like it. Also, why the hell... I'm, it's not my job to lecture her on what mm. my taste. No, no, of course, of course. Know, yeah. I'll put stuff on, in the, you know, just whilst doing other stuff. And yeah. sometimes I really like this, and sometimes, you know... But, uh, philosophically, we never know cares? what other people are hearing when we're playing well, their music. But it can also be a lot of fun to exchange with someone a set of things. I mean, you know... <laughs> yes. I love, for example, if you're in a car with a group of people, if you say you each get one track at a time and you go around, yes. you get some really interesting conflicts. Yeah, it's only, stuff it's that only goes fun on. if you like what they're playing you. Otherwise, it's a complete <laughs> well, no, nightmare. You, never have to, you know, you know it's, it's that that sort of absolved by the fact that it's only ever one track, and anyway, the driver gets gets to veto anything. So you know, but it's. It, I, I think it's. I really enjoy sharing these with other people. I'm just going to finish this beef heart section of the episode with a, a quote from the last piece we're featuring. It was by the the, the great Tim Page, who was the Washington Post music critic and it's from 1999 and he's sort of you know summarizing Beefheart's career as, as he sees it back in the early 70s when Captain Beefheart was at the decidedly substratospheric pinnacle of his fame there was no faster way to clear out a party than to put on one of his records and turn it up from the moment the phonograph needle settled into a Beefheart groove everything changed a crunching dissonance rent the air, complicated time signatures and opaque poetry upset polite conversation and rattled the Mateus Rose. Beefheart's roar of purest gravel and the untrammeled violence of his rhythms sent resident hippie into bummers. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of when I used to, in about 1970, borrow my brother's copy of White Light, White Heat, but go, take it to a party, yeah. play Sister Ray. Mm. And it'd be, oh, bummer, man, take it off. You're really bringing that <laughs> Take off down. that horrible din. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been wonderful talking to you about the book. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Please just stick around and listen to quotes that Mark's going to read out from pieces that he's added and just jump in if anything takes your fancy. Mark. Yeah, well, last week, Max Jones interviewing two blues experts, Paul Oliver and trombone playing Jack Trad. Uh, Chris Barber. Chris Barber. 
about little Walter, who was about to tour England. And Paul Olive says, one of the strongest impressions he left me, because he actually saw him in Chicago, saw him live and, and met him. One of the strongest impressions he left me with was of his toughness. He's quite small, but wiry, and looks as though he could take care of himself. His scarred features contribute to this impression. <laughs> Little Walter, by all counts, was a complete bastard. <laughs> Actually, so oh. I saw—I was shown a spot where he was killed in the alley behind the Chess Studios when we were in Chicago. Yeah, a few years yeah, back. yeah, yeah. He was a mean motherfucker. He was a mean motherfucker. But but my baby is one of the great blues tunes, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. Mike Oberman in the Evening Star, uh, Washington D.C. paper in 1968, interviewing Joni Mitchell. She says, as a child, I thought cities were beautiful. I judged them by their neon. Then in New York, I found that cities are really vulgar. I saw the dirt of the city. I found they were plastic and there was always a rush for the dollar. Now I'm ruralising myself again. I don't like to live in the cities. I owe it to myself to live where there's greenery. Well, and she's already ensconced in Laurel Canyon. She absolutely is. Um, This is great. We've got Dave Marsh's 1970 cream, big cream feature on the Stooges. And it's an extensive interview with Iggy Pop in it. And Iggy says, fame and notoriety and money and all those things are attractive, but they're not really as attractive to me as the musical forest in which I live. I'm not going to come out of my musical forest for anybody because I already know you're just fucked if you do. So I'm just in my musical forest. Um, musical forest. His, his oh, musical forest. Iggy's I quite like that as forest. a concept, yeah. actually. Yeah, well, it's, a good it's album a title, it's Iggy's Musical theory. Forest. It, it, it's, it's very interesting is that in this interview, he actually talks about who he will become, oddly. That, that, that he's got a very clear idea about what he wants to do and who he wants to be. And that is who he is now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's really you're, interesting. You're an Iggy fan, Michelle? Mm. <laughs> I, I, I like true. Lust for Life and, and The Idiot and a few things he, here and there. The, he is very much part of that worship of the self-destructive rock god. Yeah, without which, whom uh, no Nick Cave probably, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I have trouble with all that because it's uh, it then feeds into the whole Kurt Cobain sacrificial, yeah, yeah. sacrificial yes. lamb thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Though, anyway, mean, big discussion. Iggy is still with us. He <laughs> is. Against uh, all the odds. Lim- limping very badly, though he is. is yeah. Well, is you, know, know? you know... Yeah, no, he's, he's really destroyed. Because he's his, just his... thrown himself around yeah, stage yeah, yeah, and yeah. off stage yeah. too many times. Uh, talking Time. about extremes, well, um, John Morton's in High Fidelity in 1984 interviewing Ornette Coleman. And Ornette says, the only jobs I could get were in bands that read, read charts. And I've always, I'd always get fired from them because of my solos. I remember one night I started playing what I thought Stardust sounded like without playing the melody. Everybody stopped dancing and started looking up and just listening. And that night I got fired. The guy mm. said, give him vanilla, give him vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Sylvia yes, Patterson interviewing Björk in 1996. Uh, Björk says, everybody hates British food. And that's what Britpop is to me. Boring and bland and egg and steak and chips and beer. I don't understand beer. It's like drinking wood. It doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather skip it altogether and do a fucking bottle of cognac and go the whole way. I love that quote because it's exactly how I felt at that time. <laughs> it's like when someone as extraordinary as Björk is making records, we're expected to take the blue tones seriously. <laughs> <laughs> this week, Phil Everly interviewed by Maureen Cleave in the Evening Standard, 1962. He says... I used to be very mobile. You know, I used to have clothes in Nashville, clothes in my office in Hollywood, clothes at home, and a trunk always packed ready in my car. Now, isn't that mobile? Isn't that sick? Doesn't that sound like a sign of ill health to you? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, if I cease to be a success, is my life over? Am I dead? 
You're right. I'm not dead. I can dig a ditch. <laughs> this is 1962. I, I know. You get a lot of interviews like well, that. Well, that's why you know, you know yeah. I love Maureen Cleaver. Yeah, 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 such, yeah, yeah, such a yeah, great yeah. interview. Sylvester, live at Hammersmith Odeon, 1978, reviewed by David Sigerson. First paragraph. Sylvester, Disco's hermaphrodite darling, delivered one of the best shows in world history last night. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely adore that. I know, it's <laughs> right. And who's to say it isn't true? Well, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Well, I mean, we love Sylvester and Rock, <laughs> yeah. Rock's Back Page. We really do. David McCulment on Bernard Butler to Sylvia Patterson, 1995. Basically, he told her they were breaking up. She didn't know that when she went to interview him. I don't know about I love You make that. it sound like a marital breakup. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can't be. We'll, we'll get there. You know? um, uh, I mean, that album's just fantastic, McCulment Butler. It's such a great record. You know, it was one of... It came out of nowhere at the time, and it's a what lot was of. Was the first fun. great single they did together? Uh, yes, yes, oh. which is really fantastic. See, I'm, I'm with Jasper on this. They are on that list of 950 trillion that I might get around to, <laughs> but you know, life will when, run out whenever. You know, <laughs> anyway, um, David McCormick says of Bernard Butler. That's basically the problem. We can talk about music and nothing else. There are pregnant silences when we're together. It's embarrassing. We understand each other musically, and that's about it. I can't deal with that kind of emotional distress. He speaks about music with ease. With any other topic, he's quite inadequate. And I need to communicate. Mm. And later on he says, I'm a disappointment to black heterosexual men because fundamentally I'm not part of their struggle. And they'll let me know that when I walk through Leicester Square wearing something slightly colourful or tight. <laughs> <laughs> That's my lot. Jasper, <laughs> what have you got? First of all, I'd like to mention the aforementioned Kylie Minogue, ah. a review of Body Language by Jude Rogers in The Word in January 2004. Taking the zeitgeist by its shirt tails used to be Madonna's job, having hunches about cutting-edge producers and trends, placing a jazzily painted nail on the cultural pulse. The rebranding of a derriere and a canny collaboration with Kathy Dennis later, Kylie has half-inched her mantle. The Antipodean chameleon works reinvention like a professional, yet without Ms. Chacon's subversive nous. But then, how could she? This is Kylie, the pop princess you can't fail to love. Despite an inauspicious musical past, she has come to represent the credible face of pop. Uh, there we yes, go. Well, there we are. The, the case is rested. <laughs> I, um, Jude Rogers actually was my uh, interviewer, sort of chairperson, right. at, at an event in Bristol. And she was great, and she's, she's written a book called The Sound of Being Human, which yes. is lovely, absolutely yes. lovely. No, she's, we love Jude. We love She's great. Yeah, yeah. Moving great. on okay. to... Was that just recently, then? Yeah, just, yeah, 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 like sure. a week and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moving on to 2013, Goody Mob Returns, Steve Labate and Paste magazine. We legendary trendsetters, Cujo says, and it's about time for Southern hip-hop culture to take a fresh turn going into the 21st century. It's all about new ideas, new sounds, presenting it in a whole different way. We want to be that window in the smoking section, a breath of fresh air, an option to the people out here who really take hip-hop as a culture and not just something to sell. Mm -hmm. And I think Goody Mob's influence can't really be understated when it comes to that Southern hip-hop sound outcast among, you know, along, yeah, yeah. alongside they were them. one of the... Original, absolutely, exponents, really, and it's they? a really interesting interview. I mean, it's 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 well worth reading. I mean, he goes on to say, "I think the mixtape era messed up a lot of stuff. People just thought, oh, they rapping, I can do it.' 
back in the day, you really had to go through something to say something.、Mm. But some of these artists haven't been through anything; their senses haven't been exercised, and to even have the mental capacity to want to sit down and strategically plan out an album—that's how all our records work. We planned out all of them. So much of this current music is not well thought out. They're duplicating stuff that's already been done.、Mm -hmm. You got to take the time to do your homework, so you won't be saying the same thing somebody else is saying.、Mm -hmm. And I think you know that's that's, that's point. pretty astute and pretty yeah, on yeah. the money、mm -hmm. there. Lastly, I'd like to mention how the Face launched the 21st century. Paul Gorman in GQ, <laughs> 9th November 2017, and it's a, it's an interesting sort of insider piece on on the on the music press his, history of the music press and the history of the Face. Acid House provided the wake up call, rendering the behind the velvet rope Soho centric elite champion in the page of the Face obsolete in a single sequence from a Roland TB303. House and Rave's egalitarian inclusiveness had in fact been heralded by the smiley face, which appeared winking from the cover of ID's December 1987、mm -hmm. issue. That month's cover star of the Face was the by now utterly mainstream Robert De Niro during his pre Goodfellas career lull. Which is interesting. It goes on. Paul Gorman goes on to mention how the vital role that Cheryl Garrett played、right. in kind of bringing the magazine back from the brink of of essentially Nick Logan wanting to shut it down. I understood that Nick needed to make a bold statement. My point was something amazing is coming along. We ought to be around to address it, says Garrett, who then became the editor of the Face. Yeah, and, that's and really was, you know. That, that, well, critical, we, we, did, she, we did a very yeah, nice absolutely. podcast episode during lockdown, didn't yeah, we, with、um, Cheryl? And that was that and was when her last book came out. Was, I mean, she really knows. Her stuff, yeah, she? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like her very much. That's that. That's, That's it for me. Brilliant. Okay.、Mm -hmm. Well, we've come to the end of the episode.、Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. It's been a delight. Thank you. Good. <laughs> really hope so. And so, to listeners out there, if you've enjoyed this episode, please follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever, as they say, you get your podcasts, <laughs> and do give us a review if you can. Also, please visit Rock's back pages where subscribers can read. Well over fifty thousand articles and listen to well over eight hundred audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to the aforementioned Kate Bush. <laughs> Check to see if your local library subscribes to Rock's Back Pages, and if it doesn't, please suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And on that note, we're all going to say Bye. goodbye. Bye. <laughs>